Pray with me, if you would, please. Father, your mercies endure forever. Your kindness is second to none. Your forgiveness is so remarkable. Father, your love for us is beyond comprehension. The way that you nurture and guide us is like none other. Father, we love you. We as a church love you. We thank you for all these things that you have done for us in Jesus Christ. Father, we are thankful today that we could be here to gather and listen to the teaching of your word and the final verses of the book of Ephesians. Father, you have taken us from the heights of heaven. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. From the highest heaven down to our knees when you tell us to pray in the spirit on all occasions at the very end of the text. So from the heights down to our knees, we acknowledge you, we praise your name, we thank you for who you are. You are truly our Father who exists in heaven. We hallow your name. Father, we pray your kingdom come and that your work would be done on earth and your will be done on earth as you would have it and see it in heaven. Father, we thank you that you give us our daily bread. And that, Father, even in our creaturely sinful state, you have chosen to forgive us of our trespasses as you ask us to forgive those who trespass against us. Father, we acknowledge that you are not a God who will ever lead us into temptation, but that you've given us every tool we need to deliver us from evil. For as you say in your scripture, thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Speak through me now, Lord, as I teach. Father, I'm not worthy to do this. Help me today, Lord. Help us to walk through these final texts together and that you would help us all to see a vision for what you've done and how you brought us together and how you expect us to live. And we will give you all the glory. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. As I mentioned, we've been studying the book of Ephesians, and as you recall, in chapter 1, we, God has bestowed upon us undeserved blessings. He's chosen us to be his children. We found there that he has given us unmerited favor, that is favor that we could never achieve or gain on our own, that he has forgiven us of our sins, he brought about the circumstances at the exact timing that he chose when we would come to salvation. So since he performed these things on our behalf, he asked us as followers of Christ, as you remember, to acquire wisdom and revelation with a goal to knowing him personally, of which we've been doing in this entire study. He also told us that he wants us to understand the hope 
that we've been called to in our salvation. Wants us to understand the riches of what we will inherit along with believers who are in the universal church all over the world. There are riches that we all inherit. He also wants us to understand the power that he has bestowed upon us to live a life worthy of that calling. And he wants us to understand that Christ is above all. We looked at the second chapter and where he explained the true spiritual condition of every man before they are saved. We said God, yes, has chosen us before the foundation of the world, but we then come into the world, we are born, and there is a period of time in which we are born, between which we are born, and the time that our salvation comes to fruition, a culmination of the fullness of times. We saw this in the life of the Apostle Paul. We saw that he was a persecutor of Jews. He would literally go to their houses and drag them out of their house. He was there when when Peter was stoned and he held his cloak as they asked him to do it in hearty approval while they stoned Peter to death. And here is a man who was at enmity against Jesus Christ until he met him on the road to Damascus. At that point, he was changed. So there was that time in between. And Ephesians chapter 2 describes for us where we were, even though we were chosen, even though we participate in the blessings of the heavenly realm, before that came to fruition, he said, as for you, you were dead. Thanatos, you were as if you were in the deepest ocean or the deepest sea. You could never come to God on your own knowledge or your own ability. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to walk when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit that is now at work in those who are disobedient. He goes so far as to say before you were saved, you capitulated, you followed, you participated in the works of darkness, and you were captive by Satan himself. That's what he says in that passage. But we also discover, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive. He quickened us. He made us alive in Christ, just like he did the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul is blinded by Jesus on the road. He gets to the house of Ananias, and when he's there, the scales fall from his eyes, and he sees truth, and he immediately steps out and begins to follow Jesus. That's what happened with you and me when we got saved. He quickened us. But because God, who is rich in mercy, quickened us, he made us alive in Christ. He made us alive in Christ. And he clarifies it unless we think we had anything to do with it. For by grace, by unmerited favor, you couldn't earn it, you couldn't get it, you couldn't work for it. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. The means was through faith. Say, well, I exercised faith. No, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. Go translate the passage. Look at it for yourself. Faith is connected to unmerited favor. You didn't get it, couldn't have it, couldn't exercise it, just like the Apostle Paul couldn't until he had that encounter with Jesus. Then as we continued in our study and we looked into chapter 3, we saw, as we moved into that passage, that God has given us the ability to fulfill the purpose in our lives that he wants us to fulfill, just like he did the Apostle Paul. Do you realize that when the Apostle Paul, after he is saved, after he's out in the world, after he is reaching people for the Lord Jesus Christ, 
He acknowledges that I was called to reach the Gentiles, that is, those who were not Jews, for Jesus Christ, are you ready for this? When I was still in my mother's womb. He said, I was called at that time. And yet, before that came about was almost 30 plus years that he lived where he was ultimately persecuting the Jews, where God gave him through, through Philo and through other um, philosopher, Jewish philosopher and, and, and Pharisees and rabbis, incredible knowledge of philosophy and apologetics for his time and those things that made sense. He gained all this background, and then he was thrust out among the Gentiles. So he was brought into Christ, that we are his workmanship. He has something for us to do. Remember, as we said in Romans, that was written by the Apostle Paul too. The only way you're ever going to find purpose in your life is you must first give yourselves to God. Some of us are at a place like Nebuchadnezzar, where that pagan king, after he's been out in the fields for seven years, having lost his kingdom, his fingernails like eagle's claws, the hair on his body like bird feathers, eating the grass of the field, he says this of himself. I turned my face towards heaven, and my senses returned to me. There is one God, and one king who raises up kings and takes down kings, puts people in positions of authority, and no man can thwart his hand. And from that point forward, he fulfilled the purpose for which God had called him to fulfill. And that's what he wants to do with each of us. That's what he did with the Apostle Paul. But not only that, he brought us into the household of his chosen people. In all of that, he grafted us into the vine of his chosen people. He says, you were Gentiles, you are now in Jesus Christ, you are free from having to perform works, you now have access to God, the Father, through Jesus Christ, and you are now fellow citizens of the new heavens and the new earth. We then saw the timing that took place with Paul and how he was commissioned and how he was brought to faith, and then he delivers to us the practical application of the first three chapters. Because the first three chapters is about our doctrine, our place, our position, our divine choosing, our gifting, our being grafted into the vine. All of these things are found in the first three chapters. And then we get into chapter four. And in that, in that section of, of the text, therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner. He goes from doctrine to application. The second three chapters are about how you ought to live. He says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. We are called to godliness because of the all-pervasive nature of sin that we deal with. People, the nature of sin is so pervasive. It's, it's so powerful. It's all around us. It pulls at us. It tugs us. It breaks us. It gets to the deepest part of our soul. But we're also told his divine nature has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. His divine nature has been bestowed upon us so that we can break the shackles of sin even though we find ourselves in places where the temptations are great. We're pushed to the edge 
And then we find this text in Ephesians chapter 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. You put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, and it will come, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then. Now, here's where we begin our study on the weapons of our warfare. We've already said about those weapons from a passage in 1 Corinthians. Weapons of our warfare are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. That the weapons are able to tear down all conventional wisdom, all of the temptations, all of the things that come at us, all of the activity traps that we are thrown into, all of the things that deter us from doing the will of God, weapons of our warfare are mighty through God to the pulling down of these strongholds. And then he says, stand firm then with this, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, the breastplate of righteousness in place, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And we got through this on the last day of the, at Christmas time to that point. Now, are there any questions or comments? before we move forward. All right? So, we have followed the direction of God. We have chosen to be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. We have chosen to stand firm, utilizing all of the weapons of spiritual warfare at our disposal. Now it is time to enlist the final weapon. I have to tell you, I almost didn't teach this. And I was encouraged by someone as I tell them where I was going and I'm looking to my next study. And I was encouraged by them, no, you can't stop there. You must complete the text. So I went and I studied it and I spent time on it. I labored over it. And it came to me that without this one weapon, all of these other weapons are going to be feeble unless this weapon is used. So at the final weapon of our warfare that, if not used, will make feeble the other weapons mentioned, that is the weapon of prayer. I called my friend Jeff Wells up one day. He's the pastor of Woods Edge Community Church. He said, and he used to say, prayer is the greatest work. It's the most important work, prayer. And I thought about that many times while I was there with them and since that time. And one day, I was in a moment of just deep thought. I called Jeff. And I said, Jeff, 
talk to me about your prayer. Talk to me about praying. Jeff, I feel like I am prayerless. I said to him, I feel like our church is prayerless. And you used to say, prayer is the greatest work. To which at this point, I was directed to this. Because after he says, in addition to all this, take the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all of God's people. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. And as I thought about this, I was listening to another um, author. Just so you know, the way I do my study is I do the study, I read it in the English, I read it numerous times, then I look at it in the original language, and then I go to men who I respect deeply and see what they had to say about it. Some guys won't do that. I read Spurgeon when I was in seminary and he, about, about men who wouldn't, who wouldn't look to anybody else's information and they felt so highly about their own. And he said, why is it that you think so highly about what God has shown you and so little about what he has shown others? That quickened my spirit. So it caused me to be able to go and do a check on myself. Because sometimes I'll, when I'm in my study, I'll come up with some wild stuff, man. And I'll go, has anybody else ever thought this before? And typically, if it has never come up before in the 2,000 plus years of all of the writings of the church fathers, of all the historians, of all the philosophers, all the, and nobody's ever come up with this, I doubt that I have some kernel of new truth. But you never can tell. Sometimes I do. <laughs> but as I looked at this, I thought, it says, pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. Well, so what is the delivery method of our prayer? If we're going to pray, what's the delivery method? Are you with me on this so far? The delivery method is we pray in the Spirit. That's not with the Spirit. Over in 1 Corinthians 14, the Apostle Paul challenges the church at Corinth where he says, you say you pray with the Spirit, I also want you to pray with the mind. The word for with and the word for in in this text, because when you look at the preposition, I always look at in, with, or by, is which what they always mean, those of you who are acquainted with, with, the, with the original text. There's actually two different words that are used here. This one is pray in the Spirit. The one that over there is pray with the Spirit. It's used... That word it, with the Spirit is separate from in the Spirit, but when it is used with the N, if you will, epsilon nu, properly in, in the realm of, as in the condition of, of which something operates from the inside, the Spirit, pneuma, that is the Holy Spirit, the two are combined. It is used both of the, with the Spirit and with the mind, relating to the use of how we operate. We use our mind and the spirit that God has put in us. We have our, we're made of, we're a tripartite being. We're made up of a mind, emotions, and a will. That's our soul, made up of a spirit and a physical body. So when he says in the spirit, I believe he is, it's my understanding and my belief, my, my conviction, having studied this and translated it, that this is a statement about we in our hearts, 
in our spirit and in our mind. Pray with this in mind. So we pray in the spirit when we are living out the ways of God being, write this in, controlled. We pray in the spirit when we are being controlled by the spirit of God, evidenced by the fruit of the spirit, contrary to being controlled by the sinful nature. Galatians 5 says this. The acts of the sinful nation of the of the sinful nature, the acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions and envies, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. If this is in a present, active, current position of yours where these things are characteristic of your life, you need to go and look in the mirror and ask yourself, do I really know the Lord? Now, that doesn't mean you don't, but we already saw from previous verses that assurance is different than the absolute character of your salvation. If you've trusted Jesus as your Savior and you believe by faith and you believe that he called you out of darkness and now you're having a time where you're wondering, am I really saved? Am I really saved? Look at your life and how you're living. Your assurance comes from your daily activity. Your salvation comes from the promise of God as he has chosen you before the foundations of the world and you can't lose it. So if you want to be assured of your salvation, get on your knees before God, confess your sins, square off everything with God, he sees everything anyway, and come into agreement with God about how you're living. Remember, confession is not about telling something to God that he doesn't know. He already knows. Confession is agreement. So I pray... I agree with you, Heavenly Father, that I misspoke to my wife. He's already forgiven me. I need to come into agreement. You're right. I'm wrong. By the way, this is my wife, Kim. Stand up, Kim, so everybody can see how beautiful you are today. Isn't she awesome? So the acts of sinful nature are obvious and all those things that I mentioned. But listen to this. In that same text, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. So when we pray, we pray by being controlled with the Spirit in our mind, in our emotions, our will, being pushed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, when do we pray? That's the next question. Because if you recall, he said, and pray in the Spirit. When do we pray? On all occasions. We are to pray in any and every, write this in, circumstance. We're to pray in any and every circumstance in which we live our lives. On all occasions, you know, I think it's interesting that in this section, the word all, the Greek word all anyway, pos, in this case, ponti, choose four times in the text on all occasions now we all know what all means right all means all and that's all all means come on it's two weeks say it with me all means all and that's all all means that's what it means all 
on every occasion. Combined with the kairos, which means fitting season, on all fitting seasons. No matter what the situation, prayer is essential for knowing how to deal with any situation at any time. You can have all the weapons at your disposal, but you are prayerless. And it's going to be a feeble, difficult time. But then he tells us how do we pray. We pray in acknowledging the attributes and greatness of God and praying with, write this in, with specific needs, specific needs both spiritual and physical. Because here he says we pray on all occasions, that's all the time, with all kinds of two things, prayers and requests. There are two different words there. There are two different things. Now, here's the deal. As, as we talk about this, and as you think about in any and every circumstance, let me tell you what Satan's going to do to you. Satan is going to cause people, situations, to come into your life to steal your joy. He will cause people to come into your life to deceive you. He will cause people to come into your life and steal your time. He will cause people to come into your life that are going to cause you to get involved in activity traps that you never intend to do in order to put you off of the goal that God has called you to do. These are the strategies that he uses. And it's very subtle. He'll bring people at times, whether in business, whether work, or at, at home, whatever the case may be, where the deception is so subtle that unless you are praying all the time and walking in the spirit, you will not see it. I had breakfast with Scott the other day. We were talking, and while I was sitting there and we were talking about this very topic came up about all those various activity traps. Now, as you think about that, look at this. As we said in number three, how do we pray? We pray in acknowledging the attributes and greatness of God. That's prayer. For specific needs, both spiritual and physical, that's Supplication or requests. Prayers means towards an exchange. That's what the word means. Prasuke is what it means, towards an exchange. Prayer is a general term referring to speaking towards God or connecting with God, acknowledging his attributes and his greatness with thankfulness. That's prayers. It's addressing God. It's praying toward God. Then we have requests. These are, these are the word there... Um, um, Denesis means to be in want or lack. So what is that? Heartfelt petition arising out of deep personal need due to a sense of lack or want. I don't have it. I, I have a great personal need. I have a supplication. I have a request, God. It's different than praising God for his attributes and looking up to heaven and acknowledging and thanking him for all he's done. It also involves, Lord, I can't do this. I can't get there on my own. These people have come to me. The situation has come, Lord. I am helpless. I have applied the word of God. I've put on the breastplate of righteousness. My feet have been fitted with the readiness of the gospel of peace. I've thrown the gospel at them so many times, Lord. They just can't get it. I've used your word to ward off the flaming arrows of the evil one. I can't get there. He says, pray. None of that other will work unless we're in prayer. And he says, we're praying all the time about every kind of circumstance. 
praying in thankfulness, praying in trouble, praying in temptation, praying in heartache, praying when you're recovering, praying when you're breaking up with somebody, praying when you're getting with somebody, praying when you're in your business. We have a lifestyle, a constant ongoing effort of prayer. And I've got to confess to you, as your pastor, that's not how I live anymore. Because I've decided I cannot live the life as your pastor, as the county judge, and the things that I do unless I get more. I pray. I talk to God. Don't misunderstand. I talk to him throughout the day, but not like what this is talking. He says he follows with all kinds of prayers and requests. Look at this. With this in mind. You know what that means? That means considering what has been said or discussed already. With this in mind, considering what's been said, considering what I just said, with this in mind, that is, based upon the fact that our enemy is not people, but the work of the evil one and his minions, based upon the fact that we have been given weapons to stand our ground against the evil one, based upon the fact that Satan's minions use people to accomplish his purposes, and based upon the fact that in all of this, we have everything we need to defeat his onslaughts, the onslaughts of the evil one, he then says this, to command, be alert. You know, I've read over that so many times, because kind of at the end of the chapter, you're wore out by the time you go through the whole text. You really don't give it much thought. We're told to pray, pay attention, be alert. But in the context of this, that has taken on such new meaning to me. Because as I just described, you're going to have things and people and situations come into your life that are going to steal your joy. They're going to be an activity trap that's going to distract you. They're going to bring things into your life that tempt you. They're going to bring things into your life that cause you to want to go in the other direction. All these things happen, and they're so subtle, you can't see them. The prayer is the only weapon to let you see this. But even in that, he says, be alert. Pay attention to everything going on around you. Look at every situation in prayer. Look at every person that enters your life in prayer. Look at every situation as you're talking to God, knowing that Satan has been watching you all your life, and he knows the very specific things that he can use to take you out. So you better be watchful. You better be alert. That's what that means. Do you know what the word actually means? It means... To be sleepless. That's what it means. To stay awake, to watch, attentive, ready. If you will, I have it in caps. Pay attention. Same word used in Mark 13, referring to the return of Christ. Let's turn to this. But after that day or hour, no one knows, about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Here's what he says. Be on guard, be alert. Same words, be alert. You do not know when that time will come. In other words, as he has admonished us to pray at all times in all circumstances, no matter what the case is, in both prayers and requests, you still have to be watchful because Satan is not going to stop there. He's going to continue to come after you and try and take you out. 
So then he brings up, I thought it was interesting as well, he says, and where I asked the question, well, for whom should we pray? Well, obviously we pray for ourselves. But he says, pray for all of God's people. Pray for all of God's people, as well as all classes of people everywhere. And when he says to pray for all the Lord's people, that the word there for Lord's people is hagios. It's a Greek word. It means those separated unto God, those set apart to God, and therefore different from those who are of the world. Can we pray for every individual? No. He's saying pray for all of God's people everywhere. Pray for the church. We need to be praying that God would wake up the pastors, as we've been talking about. That he would wake up the pastors, that they would see the truth, and they would stand against unrighteousness, and that they would stand for the truth, and that they would be convicted to start teaching the word of God rather than all the pablum that tickles people's ears and gets them to come in on a weekend. Pray for all these people. And then we pray for each other. We pray for our body here. We pray for the needs of what people have. One individual wrote this. This is a quote. Dear Heavenly Father, in answering this question, he says, we lift up our brothers and sisters to you today, and we would like to bless them with these words of prayer. Lord, these are your people, and we know many have grown weary along the way, but today we pray that the weariness will lift from them and you will send a time of refreshing to, that is refreshing to them, spirit, soul, and body. Lord, encourage them by your spirit. You know the needs of each of your people, Lord. Meet those needs according to your will in each of their lives. Forgive me for not praying for you like this. David does. He's always prodding me and pushing me. Come on, pastor, let's pray, let's pray. Forgive me. Father, bless them with health, finances, direction, strength, wisdom, love, and the things that they need at this time. Lord, may you heal any relationship problems in their churches, in their homes, or their families. Give them revelation from on high, O oh God. May they hear your voice, restore the joy of their salvation to those who are laboring without a rejoicing heart. Father, may the joy of the Lord flood over them and help them to serve you with newness of heart and spirit. We pray for them in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. I believe also in this that we are to pray for all people everywhere, including those who might be the least deserving. First Peter says this, I urge you then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, and intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. I was reading Alistair Begg. He answers the question, how and why we should pray for all people. Will you indulge me for a moment? Paul begins his instructions by saying that it is a priority that believers pray for all people. This is what he urges immediately after providing a sober reminder that those who had made shipwreck of their faith had been handed over to Satan, the prayerless ones, the ones that turned from God, that did not pay attention. They had been handed over to the evil one. He then delivers this, and this is in Ephesus. We're studying Ephesus. This happened in Ephesus, but it's in 1 Timothy chapter 1. 
He says, Timothy, where Timothy was ministering, certain persons, 1 Timothy 1.3, had tied themselves in genealogical knots, and they had concerns about the law, and they were misguided. The Jews used to look at all the genealogies and made a big connection between groups and people and tribes and all the rest, and it was part of their religious convictions. They had concern about which laws they should keep and which not they would keep. So they were insisting upon the exclusiveness of the gospel and would have been prepared to say, we must only issue requests and prayers and intercession and thanksgiving. Yes, but we are only going to pray for the people that we think it is right to pray for. So Paul reminds Timothy, it is a matter of primary importance to pray for all people, not simply those who belong to our domain. Just as the heart of God goes way beyond genealogies and preferences, so we also must go beyond our own particularities. As one illustrative example, Paul encourages prayer for the kind of people we are most tempted to despise, to reject, to dismiss and to abandon, that is, those who are in authority. It is staggering how professing Christians, he says, today slander political leaders as if they are something less than image bearers. Where did we get the idea that we can pray for whom we like and not pray for whom we do not like? It certainly did not come from Scripture. Those who oppose you, gently instruct in the hope that God would grant them, that God would grant them repentance. You can't do it. You're not going to change anybody by yelling at them and by arguing with them. It doesn't change anything. People are still going to be that way. A man convinced against his will, my dad used to say, is of the same opinion still. Those who oppose you, gently instruct in the hope that God would grant them repentance and lead them to the knowledge of the truth and that they would come to their senses and escape the trap of the devil who's taken them captive to do his will. This is what he's talking about in prayer. Beseeching our Heavenly Father on behalf of those who we would say are unworthy, I'm not going to even pray for them. If anything, I pray that I just wish they'd die. And then lastly, item C in your outline, he says, pray for those believers who are in places of, write this in, prominence or in the public eye. Why do I say that? Because Paul says, pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me that I may fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. So, number one, pray that those who are in prominence, write that in your outline, prominence, or in the public eye, pray that they would speak fearlessly about what is right and true based upon the message of the gospel. And then pray that they would see themselves as messengers and never forget that they are in bondage to the truth. The truth has chained them down. They cannot escape. For which I am an ambassador in chains, pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should.
That's a prayer for people in prominence, people in the public eye, that they would fearlessly make known the gospel, would speak boldly for it, and recognize with humility that they're not their own, they're bought with a price. They are chained down by the word and the will of God. He says, pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. And then the closes with some salutations to Tychicus and some others. That is the end of our study. I hope that it has been helpful. All of these are online. You can go and look at them. You can watch them on video if you'd like to do that. You can look at the outlines. It's all there for you to study.